Welcome to Situational Awareness Tactics Podcast. This podcast provides the crucial art of understanding current elements in an environment to increase your safety and survival. Here's your host, forensic psychologist and consultant, Dr. Carlos. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we have a great guest, Dr. Francis Lee. He has been named chair of the Department of Psychiatry at Wild Cornell Medicine and in psychi- also the co-director of New York Presbyterian Youth Anxiety Center. And today, we're going to be talking about the neurobiology of fear, or actually better said, the neuroscience of fear. And I can't wait. Before we get started, make sure to share, subscribe, and hit that like button. You know we like it. So let's talk all about fear and welcome, Dr. Lee. Welcome, Dr. Lee. Yes, thank you so much for having me on. I think this is a very um, apt topic, given what we've all gone through for the last eighteen months. And it, it, just as an aside, it has been probably the the longest sort of natural experiment on chronic stress that this generation will have ever gone through. And you know, we do experiments in the lab where we might stress an animal for 21 days, but, but that's a long time. It's, and this, and, and we've all gone through something where we've lived with uncertainty uh, and not knowing what's happening for the, uh, an amazing amount of time. And we've also added, just to add more stress, social isolation probably to the mix also, which can also affect the fear circuitry, as you know. Yeah, it's really amazing. You're absolutely right. It's been almost two years now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> it might also be apt, too, because we're coming up with a Halloween. So I'm going to exactly. throw that in there at you, too, a little bit, because I know people yeah. always ask me that question. Yeah. But first and foremost, where does fear register in the brain? So as everyone probably knows, it's, 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 the main fear center of the brain is some, a small sort of subcortical region called the amygdala. And it's brought up many times in many contexts, but it is, it is the one sort of like warning center that essentially sort of surveys the world for you to basically see what's, what's, what's possibly dangerous, like any natural predator is, this is the brain region that is set off. And it is there to protect us and ensure our survival. But the problem is, is that that under certain conditions and psychiatric conditions, the amygdala is hyperactive. And the normal way that the amygdala is regulated is that we have a cortical region called the prefrontal cortex, which is helps us make decisions, do effective executive functioning, and sort of lets us sort of remember things on a very quick basis. And this is what normally sort of regulates the amygdala. And so, for example, if you hear a, a car backfire, your prefrontal cortex, you might have an initial startle response, which is your amygdala going off. And then your prefrontal cortex, which communicates with your visual cortex, will see, oh, that was a car. That was definitely not a gun. We are definitely not in a war zone. <laughs> you know, we can you know, please calm down and just keep on walking. Um, and but if you, for example, are a, some a, a veteran that has come back from Iraq or Afghanistan most recently, and you hear that, you might actually not your prefrontal cortex might not be able to suppress the amygdala reaction because essentially it reminds you of something that happened even a decade ago and and it can it will persist and this is a form of of an anxiety disorder called post traumatic stress disorder and so you can sort of see how the the region of the brain 
that was supposed to be there to protect us from being eaten by lions and wolves and other predators has, has actually gone a little awry, especially with, with uh, people who have had, for example, stressful experiences. But there's a certain a part of the population that actually have anxiety disorders. And it's a, it's a, in a very large number, actually. It is believed that 30% of the population um, will have an anxiety disorder in their lifetime. And most of them will have it. Um, the average age of onset is 13 years of age. So most of them wow. will have it before they've, during adolescence mainly. And so the idea is that, that you have, and there are very few psychiatric disorders that actually emerge after the age of 25. So you essentially have the large sort of aggregation of, of mood disorders and, and anxiety disorders that, that do show up in this younger population. I got like a lot of questions to ask you now, but <laughs> as you mentioned, the communication between prefrontal cortex and, and the amygdala. Yeah. So when you're talking about like people who have phobias, things of that nature, anxiety issues, are we looking at functional connectivity issues or are we looking at brain structure uh, yeah. reduction in volume or both? I would say that if we were having this radio show 10 years ago, we, I would be talking to you about axons and myelination and sort of the structural connectivity of the reciprocal connections between the two regions because the amygdala connects to the prefrontal cortex. You know, so it's like a two-way street. Um, but now with modern functional neuroimaging, we also know that, that they're essentially, that the brain is actually not organized in just sort of like sort of nuclei of, of masses of neurons it actually is sort of like a network. It's sort of the same way that you would think of, for example, um, if you looked at the air, airline networks of how they have hubs, like for example, Delta has a hub in Atlanta. And, and then you, so that would be possibly like the amygdala. And then it has another hub in Chicago and that's the prefrontal cortex. And you can imagine that a, a storm in Atlanta will affect the, what happens in, in Chicago because they're all connected. And so the idea is, is that the brain is actually connected in a much more complicated way than we thought, not just the, the little axons, because they literally are probably connecting through sort of ensembles of neurons that are distributed throughout the cortex with the amygdala, for example. So it's a, and that the best way to actually see it is actually not in sort of the same way that you would not look at pictures of airports, you would actually look at sort of like the flight patterns of planes going back and forth. That's the only way you can tell that Atlanta is a hub for Delta versus you know, the, the physical plant of the, of the airport does not tell you that that is the hub. And that's what we've been looking at for the last 50 years, these sort of like static pictures of, of, of airports. And now we can sort of see them flying in real time, essentially by doing sort of more uh, live functional neuroimaging of humans and also rodents. So it's, it's now, we can now go back and forth between the two. Yeah. Great discovery, but more, more questions now than, <laughs> than answers, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> These are the way it works with research. Yeah. Any, any aspects of lateralization here in regards to fear in the amygdala, the right and left side differ? Yes, in the human, for some reason, it's always, I forget whether it's right or left, but it's lateralized. And no one has understood the lateralization of it. In the, in the rodent, it's not lateralized. And I think that just sort of tells you the, the sort of the, the greater complexity of the primate brain versus the rodent brain. You know? but, so we don't really know why. But I would say that what's, what would be equally more um, salient is the fact that, that everyone always talks about how 
adolescence is a period of time when the prefrontal cortex develops. So it's the last developing brain region, everything else develops beforehand. And, but what's interesting is, is, is that the, the actual physical connection between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala, there, you could not see that sort of like increased connectivity um, during, you know, in the rodent models. But if you image humans using this sort of like functional connectivity, you can see the weakened connectivity that strengthens over time, right? So this is why we have a better, we now, it's sort of like we were looking at, we were using sort of a still camera. Now we have a video camera <laughs> and wow. now we can see it for the first time that actually it is not the structural axons, but it's the sort of the information flow going back and forth between the two brain regions that seems to be strengthened. It's more, it's much, it becomes more efficient essentially. Yeah. I, I used to use this analogy. Tell me if I'm off base here. So it sounds like as we're growing, as we get older, going through adolescence, maybe even beforehand, we're using side streets a lot to get from one place to another. And yes. then as we get older, we start going to freeways and maybe even toll roads. Exactly. exactly. Okay. And, and the way to think about it is the way to think about adolescence in both rodent models and in humans is that adolescence is the last time you get to finish the, the, the last construction project. <laughs> ah. <laughs> because you can't, we, once you make a four lane highway, it's very difficult to remake it, right? So, so the, the point is, is that um, it is a period of time as you're doing that last stage of construction, that you're at probably the most vulnerable for things such as um, psychiatric disorders, because it's sort of, you're in the midst of rearranging the map in a way. Then, but it also tells you that if you do make, if something does happen during adolescence, you do have, because of its increased plasticity, you do have time to remake it, right? Because the, oh. the construct crews are still there, right? They can, the, the road crews can, can remake them, the, the map as needed based on what environmental stresses or insults come in. So, which really gets to the point that if it is a period of vulnerability, but it's also a period of opportunity because you can rewire during that period of time. And this is the, probably the last period that you can rewire. Yeah. Oh, really? That's is about it. Yeah. Which really tells you, just as a, from a public health point of view, that if you have children or adolescents who exhibit symptoms, they're not going to outgrow it. You know, get treatment. They could get the road crews in there as soon as possible. Uh, yeah. That's a great point. Great point. Yeah. Especially, I, I focus a lot on the criminal behavior and the criminal mind. So this is <clears throat> right up my alley. I'm going to take you back a little bit because sure. I know we're we're focusing a lot on adolescence, which is where we're we're going okay. to. But how would I? I want to see if we take early tra childhood trauma, yeah. and do we are we going to revisit that in adolescence? Which I think we do. Um, I'm talking about endocrine disruptors, right? In that second term, we have a lot of hormones flushing into the brain in the prenatal period in utero, we start getting neurodevelopment going on. Do we see, what do you see in regards to the development of the amygdala, the development of the prefrontal cortex early on in childhood and what it can lead to in adolescence? So your first question about question. what's going on in uh, prenatal times, we actually don't know that much because it's been very difficult to get access to it, even, even in rodent models. 
But I have to say that there are multiple groups across the country right now that are actually doing uh, you know, infant neuroimaging work to look at this exact question of this sort of how does the connectivity patterns of the various cortical and subcortical regions, such as the prefrontal cortex, emerge during, and they are also looking at them. And I think preliminary data from what they found so far is, is that if you have depression or if the mother has depression or anxiety, that it does affect the connectivity patterns of the of the preterm infant. So the stressor of, of pregnancy is mainly the mental state of the mother. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. The, the other point you made is there's another area of where there could be a significant amount of stress, which is the first five years of life. And probably the best sort of, or the, the most well-researched studies have been the studies which are sort of natural experiments where there where children have been adopted from from uh, in different different countries and brought to sort of higher um, wealthier sort of socioeconomic environments where they basically get live in enriched environments and what they have noticed is is that that being whatever sensorily deprived or whatever during early life can have significant repercussions there's no sort of like clear linear like if you had this then you will have these sets of psychiatric disorders as with everything in with humans and even with rodents there's a there is a distribution some some are quite resilient and do quite well and others have a series of of of, of, of behavioral health issues um, but i would say that what what is the way to think about it is, is is if development is a series of of waterfalls that you have to go through like these developmental stages if you mess up stage number two then then it's going to then mess up the, the length of stage number three so the what the rodent literature has suggested and also has been confirmed by some human neuroimaging literature is that if you have, go through a significant stress during childhood, um, you will actually, your brain will actually mature faster <laughs> during sort of like late childhood, early adolescence. You will, whatever, wow. achieve adolescence a little earlier. And the, the, the logic of that is, is that the, the, the brain has sensed that, that, that the environment is hostile <laughs> and it is, it is, it is gearing up and making everything grow as fast as possible within the brain and getting all the circuits ready so you can survive. Yeah. So it's an adaptive response to the stress to be essentially become, um, to mature quicker, but sort of, there's probably a reason why as humans, we probably go through probably the most prolonged brain development from zero to 24 <laughs> you know, of any oh, species. Yeah, that there is some need for it. If the, if we didn't, we would probably truncate it. So it, so truncating it and making you know whatever it accelerate for by a few years even probably is an imbalanced type of situation where you will you will survive the first ten years, but then in year then in that last final stage of adolescence where you're doing the final rewiring of the of the of the roadmap then the, the, all the landmarks are probably off. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, the, the, whatever script that our human genome gave of how it should all happen in, in a 24 year period is probably off, right? Oh, that's fascinating. A lot, of, a lot of, so much stuff going on at, the, at that period of time. Yeah. How about emotional regulation? Is that playing a role? I remember reading about Dr. I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Alan Shore's work 
and attachment in the right brain to right brain and attunement and all that, does that play at all in at least maybe a P or trying to alleviate or allay fears and things of that nature or no? Yes, exactly. And, and actually during early childhood, the, in addition to your brain, you have, you have something else. You have two external brains, hopefully. You have a mother and a father. And they're the ones that what they say are actually buffering your brain. So essentially they provide sort of the, the, they provide the external regulation for your emotions. So that, so that what they've noticed is that, for example, they've done experiments in, um, in rodent models where they can even do sort of fearful or stressful um, interventions. And if the mother is present, then the, the brain is the infant or the child, the juvenile brain is protected. Oh wow! Yeah. So some <laughs> so essentially the way to think about it is is the brain essentially needs a scaffold. It needs sort of to know that it's in a safe environment, and the presence or the odor of a mother, in the case of rodents, they they just use olfactory cues, will basically provide that. So you can actually get away with even providing odors to provide sort of safety signals or safety cues to the to the in the infant or juvenile rodent, for example. And it, they've also done experiments um, to show that in humans that, that they can handle fear better if the mother is present up to a certain age. <laughs> right. Now you mentioned genomes. Is there a genetic component in regards to fear? I mean, do we have like, a, are there particular genes? I know most of them are polygenic, but are we looking at another polygenic aspect in regards to fear in the amygdala and responding to it? And maybe... Can you talk a little bit about epigenetics, if that plays a role at all? Yes, um, I would have to say um, that unfortunately we don't know that much about the epigenetics, but there is a great hope, I would say, about 20 years ago that we would find, just like they did in neurologic disorders, these single genes for, like, for example, for Huntington's disease or sort of other, and we, and ultimately what has, we found is, is that that in, in psychiatry, we have what's called a comp, all the disorders related to, for example, fear and anxiety or complex disorders. Even if there's some transmission between families, it's very difficult to find these hundred needles in the haystack that we have to find. Yeah. Um, I would have to say that um, what, what has become clearer is, is that it is a combination of both genetic predisposition as well as environment. Just as if you, like another common, very complicated disorder is for example, obesity, right? Yeah, Where yeah. You, you might have the hundred obesity gene, risk genes, but you also have to eat a high fat diet. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> to, to get to get this, and so that if it's so, it's very difficult because we don't actually have. We only have each for each subject their own recollection of their pre prior life and their stressful events. So it's all self-report. So we don't really have very good sort of quantitative measures of how much stress a developing brain went through. <laughs> Right. And so Absolutely. that we don't know exactly how much of an environmental influence there was. So then it becomes very difficult if you don't have that part of the equation, but you have all the genes. This is what's why it's, why it's been so difficult and why we've needed tens to hundreds of thousands of subjects to get sort of genome wide hits for even depression, for example. It's very hard to find the depression gene. Or, and I can, and there are groups that are looking for the post-traumatic stress disorder gene or the anxiety gene, but they, it's, it's not been as clear and, and it's not um, 
And, and as I mentioned, most of these disorders emerge in adolescence. The, the ones that are very well genetically tied are the ones that emerge early in life. <laughs> You know, so like autism spectrum disorders or fragile X, you know, so you don't have that sort of one-to-one -one correspondence of what's going on in early life with a genetic, uh, with a predisposition. So this is because by the age of 18, you've led a pretty full life and it's hard to know what, what was it, was it your mother? Was it the school teacher? Was it whatever your friends, you know, along this path that, that led to sort of you sort of having a, a, a depressive episode or an anxiety whatever attack, right? Why do you think it's, it's, it's uh, more prevalent during adolescence? Is it a hormonal thing? Is it experiences both? Or something else. That's a very interesting question. I think, it, by the way, all the epidemiology suggests it really is true that you first anxiety emerges first, then depression, and mm -hmm. and 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 most people will say that if you just think about so if you think about an eight year old and demands of an eight year old <laughs> versus the demands of an eighteen year old, you realize that the brain and the environment change dramatically. So your brain essentially has to stretch. And, and what happens is you also have to make this critical switch of having being in this under within the framework and scaffold of your parents or your caregivers to basically attaching to your peers. You know, that sort of that sort of switch where you where your peers become more important than your parents and to essentially becoming independent. And you can imagine that your brain is just your there's so many demands being put on the brain during this period of time. And and most and what the reason why 18 turns out to be a very high year for prevalence of depression is everyone goes to college. <laughs> yeah. So then, then all the scaffolds come off and then suddenly you're, you're for the first time you have to, for example, do your own laundry or something like that, you know, that you've never had to do before or get your own food or whatever that never, that, that, so then even then the demands become greater. And then there's also the possibility of social stresses because if peer groups are so important and you're not a part of a peer group, then it becomes an additional sort of area that becomes where your amygdala is going off at that point. Right? Yeah. Let me ask you this, Dr. Lee, yeah. and, um, trying to figure out how I phrase this. By the way, again, folks, we're talking to Dr. Francis Lee. You can find more information on nyp.org. He's the director, co-director of New York Presbyterian Youth Anxiety Center, as well as the chair of the Department of Psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medicine. I'm trying to think, Dr. Lee, we know the prefrontal cortex is developing more and more as we get older, right? At least in adolescent years. I wish it was still going on, but in adolescent years, is that countering the, the level of anxiety being increased now? Uh, I guess I'm trying to figure out, because as you mentioned, 16, 17, 18, our anxiety levels tend to be escalating. Yes. Um, does the prefrontal cortex have to kick in more now? Is, or is it actually hampered by the increase of anxiety? Yes, I think you're absolutely right. The anxiety can actually basically hamper prefrontal cortical function. And there was this extraordinarily interesting study done by one of my colleagues, Connor Liston here at Cornell, where he took... 24-year-olds or 
uh, who basically were medical students and he basically imaged their prefrontal cortex just before they had to take their major exam, which is the board exams. If they did not pass these board exams, they cannot proceed in the medical school curriculum. And their prefrontal cortex stopped functioning as well. They could not do sort of like attentional tasks as well. And, and the connectivity to other brain regions broke down. So he was using functional neuroimaging. But after they took their summer break, all it all came back. <laughs> oh, good. So the good. prefrontal cortex is pretty resilient. And this is again, I think what I was telling you that it, it, that if you it, for young adults, it's a it's a region that is quite able to handle stresses and bounce back. But we're very lucky that there's another brain region that had been previously thought of mainly to be involved in spatial navigation, which is called the hippocampus, which is just below the, the prefrontal cortex. And what research from many fields, but researchers, including my own lab, have shown is that during adolescence, the prefrontal cortex actually matures very quickly and, and connects with the amygdala and with the prefrontal cortex. And it acts as the sort of the, you know, whatever accessory tire you might need just in case you need it. So you have this, the fear circuit is now not only the prefrontal cortex, but you also have a, a hippocampus that's ready to step in during adolescence as needed, right? The, the implications of that mean is, which kind of makes sense that, you know, that adolescents are very, much want to be in a certain context. They want to be, they want to be sort of, they want their hippocampus to be stimulated in many ways. They want to, to be in new places and explore new, you know, which makes kind of sense with what you, they're essentially going out into the world. And so I think this is a discovery that I think explains a lot of why, why would nature set up a situation where you couldn't regulate your fear at the moment when you're just exploring new environments and stuff like that? If you're going off to college, why, why do you need a sort of an underdeveloped prefrontal cortex or whatever? Or, you know, so what, what nature did was it gave you, the, it, it was plastic enough that the hippocampus actually sprouts more axons and spines during a period during adolescence, which then die, which then sort of, then at some point the prefrontal cortex takes over. But you can now sort of see there's this sort of nice sort of interplay between different brain regions and different hubs, you know? So like, while we're waiting for Chicago to build their airport, we will use, we will use whatever Dallas for a while, right? And so <laughs> Dallas will provide the hub to allow us to regulate the amygdala during that period of time, you know? Just amazing. It just tells you some, just how amazing the brain is, right? That it, it's, it, it has figured this out in some way, right? Oh, it really is. It's truly amazing. The more you learn about it, it's just phenomenal. You, you mentioned the hippocampus. So it made me think immediately over to the world of memories. Yes. Um, exactly. I've heard memories in the amygdala are more salient, I think more episodic, if I'm correct. And the hippocampus might be more procedural and other types of memories. And, but then it also made me think about trauma. So tell us a little bit about memories and amygdala, fear, trauma, how those are interrelated. So essentially memories, especially fearful memories or stress, stress memories are initially encoded in the amygdala, but you will also remember as, as I had, uh, one of my colleagues had a patient who was mugged uh, near our campus and he never forgot the place he got mugged, that, that street corner. And he would avoid it as a result, right? Oh, because, wow. because it was so, it was not only did he have that stress response from the amygdala, but the hippocampus. So you have multiple brain regions encoding the different parts of the memory. But 
But what's interesting is, is that the, uh, the memory then goes someplace else that we don't know, some other parts of the cortex, and it gets sort of held there, and it can be reactivated. So, for example, the, the, the student who was mugged, you know, didn't think about, you know, whatever the corner that he was mugged at near campus. But the minute he walked there, by there, it came back, right? Because then suddenly, it's sort of like if you, if you whatever, saved some document on your desktop and you tucked it away somewhere. But as you walk by the street corner, you, it then gets opened up magically, right? And then you, it, it gets retrieved you know? because, the, the, because your hippocampus is always finding navigation. But I, the, I think your point about memory is great because this is actually the, the, the way that um, the, the main treatment for anxiety disorders, depression, as well as PTSD is a form of treatment called cognitive behavioral therapy. And it's based on something called fear extinction learning. You're supposed to learn that this previously dangerous, for example, street corner is no longer dangerous. And this is where the hippocampus and prefrontal cortex work together to basically sort of not erase the memory, but actually modify the memory and say that this previously dangerous place is no longer dangerous. And then both of them do some type of computational analysis and, it's, and, and this is why it takes, you can't have one session of CBT. You have to repeat this over and over again over several weeks at least. And, and we've done this also in rodent models where one day of fear extinction training is not enough to, to sort of diminish the, the sort of reaction to the fear, but you have to do it over multiple days, yeah, which really tells you that there is some type of relearning or new learning that's occurring in the prefrontal cortex, which is then modifying the amygdala. So it's so essentially the amygdala now encodes that this, whatever, this street corner is no longer dangerous, for example. Fascinating. Oh, but the problem is, is that if he then gets mugged again at <laughs> that same street corner, then, it, it, it all comes back. <laughs> or he has a, let's say he has an argument at street corner that with his girlfriend, then all of everything else comes back. You know, even, even though it was not, if his amygdala gets activated and it, it reminds him that this is the place that a previously unpleasant thing happened. You know, that's the problem because it would, if it was, if we then had this sort of like, that's the thing about memories. They're not as, as, for permanent as we think they are. They're very plastic. You can actually change, change them and modify them, but they can always, you know, whatever. And that's why it's been difficult for, especially for disorders like PTSD, where the memories get reactivated and then and they have to then go back for more treatment, these types of CBT-based treatments. That's probably one of the most unsettling things that I've studied is the memory and how unreliable it really is. Exactly. I think a lot of relationships have issues because of their reliance on their memory. Let yes. me ask you this, Dr. Lee. Well, it led me to another question, but before I get to sure. that question, I want to bring you back for a second. I've heard Broadman's 19 in regards to people with PTSD um, gets reactivated, causing them to relive, to actually relive physiologically that event. Have you heard anything of that nature at all? Not really. I, I, I've, I've heard of that region being reactivated, but from what I can tell from most of the functional neuroimaging studies, it is multiple brain regions get reactivated or get activated, but everyone still believes that it is the amygdala that is sort of like driving this at some point. You know, but, that, you know, but there is within, within the sort of the symptomology of 
of post-traumatic stress disorder, one of the core cardinal symptoms is this reliving of the event as if it just happened. Exactly. And it, and that has to happen somewhere. And it's not the amygdala. So it, it probably is Broadway 19 that, that where this reliving occurs. Right. Interesting. And I, also, I do a lot of uh, consulting with police officers and I've done a special podcast with special forces trainers training. Um, so I've talked to green berets, Navy seals, uh, individuals like that, and they're all being conditioned in these high stress environments. So we know the amygdala detects threats, right? We know that fear. Now they're being trained to detect a threat and to calm in a sense, their amygdala, let their prefrontal cortex take over and process what's happening. You were mentioning CBT in, for individuals with anxiety and fear. What's your take on that for this kind of desensitization type of training? Any no, no. I, I've actually also had patients who were also special forces as well as uh, oh. pe- and and they've described their training to me when they're in they're actually when they're in their usually early twenties. You know, so again, this sort of early adolescent, late uh, no late adolescent or young adulthood period, and they describe the training as you can imagine. It's even worse than boot camp. Right, that they really they're they're given boot camp, you know, times ten, right, and and so and what, and I never understood why they did it, but in many ways they're already sort of doing exposure therapy at that moment. They're essentially saying we're going to put you under continued stress for prolonged periods of time with great uncertainty, and in what they are doing is they're doing actually they're weeding out the ones that can't handle it. <laughs> so yeah. if you can actually get through their boot camp or their first couple of years of special forces training, then you will, you will make it. Right. And then, so they've, they, they've selected people with probably very strong prefrontal cortical to amygdala connections. <laughs> and in many ways that that's what they've done. And, and I think then what they can do is they, their prefrontal cortex, when they're, they've described to me what they happens when they're in, in the theater, as they would say. And they said that they just go back to remembering their training you know, and being very calm and sort of just being able to remember that they've been through something like this before and that they made it through it. And, and that's what they tell themselves as they go, you know, whatever happens to them. And, and they also, but so I think it, it, they're selected and they're probably a special group of humans that have this special you know, like vice-like control of their amygdala in some way. <laughs> I have to tell you, I think you're right. Cause I've interviewed some individuals and when they talk about gun, gun battles that they've gotten into yeah. some of these really hairy situations, man, I, I don't know if the average person could do that. It's just a you lot know, going on. And, but I, but also what's, what, what also is very interesting about this. They also do something which they also um, put everyone together as a, as a cohort. So they rely on each other. And so in many ways, they are, they are doing things not just for themselves, but for their social cohort. And so they're fighting together. You know? That's an interesting point. I didn't think about that. They, yeah, like they, always, they always talk about that they're more worried about what's happening to the others. And if you do that, it actually allows you to, you know, you know that you're part of a team and you're either, you know, that everyone has to play a part. And then they have this sort of so, this social bonding that allows them to possibly, again, um, sort of distract their amygdala from, from worrying about their own sort of immediate health, uh, safety, for example, right? Which is, it is kind of amazing that, that humans will put themselves 
in a, in a gun battle, and they will actually go back into a gun battle to get one of their comrades, you know, you know, and they'll risk their lives again just to do that. It tells you just how strong those bonds are. And what I think happens, actually, the emergence of psychiatric disorders is, is not during the time they're are deployed. It's when they go home and they lose all that sort of social bonding and sort of being with some other people that are going to protect you and be together in some way. It's interesting. So it's, most people don't develop PTSD while they're there. They, it's only when they come home and they're sitting by themselves and they're no longer in that sort of very regimented social unit that they're in. That's, that's absolutely true. So true. I mean, I find them extremely fascinating when I do the interviews with them as yeah. I listen to them talk. And it's like, wow, it's just a whole different, I mean, it's a brotherhood. It exactly. really changes their mind. It, it exactly. kind of maps their brain in a different way. Yeah. I think we've never studied that, that how, how we, I was discussing, I was discussing before the social buffering of how the mother will help the infant, but we've never really explored the social buffering of peers with each other, right? That peers could actually, yeah. because peers can, can essentially know who else is afraid and and support them in some way, right? Yeah. That's a great point. That's a great point. And you know, I want to um, switch gears a little bit because um, the time is, is coming short. I can't believe it's already been 40 minutes. But <laughs> I wanted to talk about drugs, <laughs> but all kinds of different types of drugs and cocktails. But first, I wanted to get into neurotransmitters and hormones. Do they play yeah. roles at all in fear? Yes, definitely. So the brain is, it has the history of neurotransmitters is that we always thought that there were like five or six of them, like the, like dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, but then it's become clear that things such as amino acids like glutamate and GABA are also neurotransmitters. I would have to say that our field has evolved in the very beginning of our field for these, for anxiety disorders and depression. It was always what we, I would call the deficit model. You were low on serotonin or low on norepinephrine, and then you would have to just replenish them by using uh, drugs that would block their reuptake or increase levels of them. You know, so that has always been the idea. And I think that has, and these drugs are very effective and they've helped a lot of people. Um, but there's a group of people that have not res fully responded, whether they have anxiety disorders, depression, or, um, uh, or PTSD. And for those, we now have come to terms with the fact that the depletion model is probably not going to be the one that's going to take us to the very end of helping everybody. And this, is, this has led to the exploration of newer agents such as ketamine, psilocybin, M NMDA, you know, MDMA, you know, so that um, I think that there is, we're now thinking that the that the brain, as we discussed before, is very plastic, and it could probably become more plastic with these drugs that would would modulate, for example, glutamate or something like that. So I think the idea is that we're that there will be new newer agents. For example, ketamine has been uh, a version of ketamine has been FDA approved for for depression already. So I think that this is the, sort of the next phase of of thinking that we need to essentially. Um, increase the plasticity so that potentially the road crews could come in and remake the map as needed between the prefrontal cortex, for example, and the amygdala. You know, so we think this is because we, the idea is that ketamine, for example, is probably working in the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus to some degree and probably oh, wow. trying to rewire or remake the roadmap. But so I think there is great hope in the future for these, for these newer agents. But the idea is, is that 
I wish I could say that we we now had a fine-tuned knowledge of what neurotransmitters are up or down in the it, with each individual disorder. But I think what we we have a much better clue of what circuits or what hubs are down or up, you know, in these disorders, just because of of of, of our. Uh, the, I think what we've realized is is that um, the brain is actually. A, a very complicated set of circuits, you know, more complicated than we can ever imagine. And that, that we will probably have to come up with very specific, you know, that we cannot just measure whole brain dopamine or whole brain nor these transmitters. We will have to do something circuit by circuit, you know, in, in each circuit, they might be slightly different. And so it's going to be, it's, which is challenging, but I think this is why, we all went into this field because this is probably the greatest challenge that we will face, right? In terms of trying to unlock how, how so many complicated neuron circuits involving, you know, billions of neurons are working together. Absolutely. I guess my, yeah. my last few questions is um, one is are, are drugs, are there any drugs that can exacerbate fear or, um, how would you say disrupt that circuitry, such as uh, I don't know, uh, marijuana, cocaine, heroin, anything like that? Have you seen any research on that? So what I tell my patients is who have anxiety disorders is that there are three things that they should probably avoid because they are going to probably increase anxiety: caffeine, which is very disappointing for most people, but uh, <laughs> nicotine and, and marijuana. And, and, and you know, so they're all things that sort of, as you can imagine, do things. So it's, it's clear that, that caffeine is something that will obviously make you a little edgier. But what happens with, for example, the, with marijuana, which, which, which activates the CB1 receptor, is that you, you get this sort of momentary relief of anxiety. Or you become mellower, but at the same time, right? So it actually becomes anxiety states as a result. And so I think the, these are the things that I try to tell my patients to try to avoid during you know, periods of high stress, in particular. And but I would have to say that that more than exogenous agents, if they can do things such as meditation exercise, you know, the things that we normally don't want to do, <laughs> you know, the things that, that we say are good for lifestyle, just the same way that if you, if, if someone has obesity, the best treatment for obesity is not a drug. It's actually going on a, like a low fat diet and eating whatever, a plant-based meal <laughs> or whatever. You know? So in, in the, the simple things amazingly are the things that will be the best for one's mental health in many ways. Yeah. Great stuff. I guess my last few questions, I want to address this one first. It's kind of more of a self-interest question. <laughs> um, psychopaths, do we see anything there? Because we know they have a different type of functioning brain. Have you seen anything on that? Yes. That's a, again, there are many frontiers of, of both of neuroscience and also of, of sort of biological psychiatry. And this is a, a group of, of patients that we have had no luck in sort of understanding, mainly because um, they actually 
don't want to be studied <laughs> and they don't want to be in treatment. So, so, so you, if you notice most of these other ones, we've been able to do randomized controlled trials, which is the gold standard for anxiety disorder, PTSD and depression. We, and you need hundreds of, of people to show up and be willing to, to be in these trials. And we've not yet been able to do that with this population. And I think this is what's, what will be the rate limiting step. And there is no rodent model for sociopathy, right? So this, you know, we've been very lucky that we've had preclinical models for anxiety. We have, that's how the whole fear circuit was dissected, right? We had, we had very where we had the same um, experimental setup that was used by, by the same researchers across the world to dissect these circuits. And the same with depression, but, um, but with, sociopathy, this is good. This is whatever, but probably going to be very difficult. I guess but, my last, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, no, but, but it, uh, that doesn't mean that it's, it's not a problem that needs to be addressed. <laughs> right. Absolutely. I guess my last question would be, I'm not sure how familiar you are with polyvagal theory and whether or not the vagus nerve does anything to kind of calm down <laughs> anxiety or fear at all. Do you know anything about that? Yes, because you know, vagal nerve stimulation has been um, used many times for the treatment of depression. So I, that definitely there is something there. The, the reason why there has not been as much um, movement or, or insight is because it is you actually have to do, up until recently, you had to do a, a, an operation to actually insert the stimulator into, the, into a certain part of your chest or, or in near your ear for it to get the stimulator in. So it is a pretty big step to, to decide to get a, a, a sort of, and I think, but that said, it is still something that is part of the armamentarian of how to treat depression in particular. It tells you that there is some connection between the gut and the brain that we have still not figured out. So there's somehow, which kind of makes sense that, that there is some, there has to be some connection between the periphery with the central nervous system and the vagus nerve being so, sort of like the super highway of nerves going into the brain, into the you know, brain would make sense, but they've not been able to dissect it in a, in a sort of a satisfactory way as of yet. I think with these more non-invasive vagal nerve stimulators, I think there will be, then, then larger cohorts can be studied in terms of not randomized controlled trials, you know, and to see whether or not they can, the same way that it's now being done. The area that I thought you were going to bring up is this other form of, of neuromodulation called transcranial magnetic stimulation. This has recent, just in the last five years, has been a. It was ten years ago, or fifteen years ago, it was approved for depression. In the last two years, it's been approved for, um, amazingly, obsessive compulsive disorder as well as smoking cessation. So it tells you that this is probably, and this is a non-invasive way of stimulating different cortical regions, in particular the prefrontal cortex. And it, and I think that this is probably this marries very well with our advances in circuit uh, biology that we're learning, neurobiology that we're, you know, so that we, as we understand the circuits in the brain that, for example, affect fear and anxiety, then you can imagine that we can target them now in a very focal way. You know, I, I have this, that 30 years from now, people will be amazed that we were able to have people swallow a pill and have a small molecule bathe the brain 
And, well, and, and in the future, it will probably be that some, you swallow a small molecule and then stimulate a circuit in the brain. And then only that circuit gets gets the whatever the benefits of that small molecule or something like that. I think wouldn't be surprised. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Does heart rate variability play a role at all? Um, for anxiety disorders, people who have heart rate issues like mitral valve prolapse actually have higher rates of panic attacks. Oh, because, because it's sort of like a feedback loop. If you start, if your heart rate is some, somewhat irregular, then you become you you focus on it. You become a little more anxious about it, and so there there does seem to be some issues related to. But it has not been studied to the level that you know is we we, we can make any statements. I'd say. Lots of stuff, Doctor Lee. I could keep you here all day. <laughs> no, no, you asked great questions. Really amazing stuff, Doctor Francis Lee. Again, folks, chair of the Department of Psychiatry at Wild Cornell Medicine, as well as the co-director of New York Presbyterian Youth Anxiety Center. Doctor Lee, thank you so much for taking oh, the time. Thank you so much. Yeah, hope you have a wonderful day. You too. Fascinating discussion. I can't wait. We'll have to catch up with you again in the future and bring you back if there's more updated information. Fascinating stuff, folks. Make sure to share, subscribe, and hit that like button. You know we like it.